art is the most like innate human instinct. We nourish ourselves, we shelter ourselves, but we also need to like make meaning. And yet museums and the sort of financial aspect of art has made it seem as though people aren't allowed to think of themselves as having that capacity because it's something Mm. only rich people are allowed to have. And that's just absolute bullshit. Welcome to Personal Project. Yes, thank you for being here. This is Isha Sabatini Sloan. She is an author. She is a lecturer of many kinds. You've written how many books have you published? Four? I have, yeah. I wrote The Fluency of Light and Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, which is now going to it went out of print and now it's coming back out again from gray wolf press oh my gosh congrats and then thank you and then there's borealis from coffee house and then captioning the archives i wrote with my dad it's mostly my dad talking and then i'm working on a book tentatively called blacklit about art and awakening whatever that means i guess we'll find out thank you for that i wanted to know like looking back on your childhood and or just growing up if there was a person that you encountered either in your life or in the media that you were like I want to do what that person's doing with my life and maybe it was a writer maybe it was not but like the first someone who you saw who sparked your interest and inspired like a potential career for you the first thing that jumped to mind when you said that was Lisa Bonet's wardrobe from The Cosby Show. Oh, my which, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I Which I do think probably had, like, broader implication than just wearing bohemian, chic, clashing styles and textures. But I feel like there was something about just being an artist, maybe, that I feel mm-hmm. like was channeled through her character. And I'm trying to think beyond that. That's a perfectly... Yeah. Okay. Solid answer. <laughs> if somebody else randomly arrives in your brain, feel free to sh- okay. shout him, her, them out at any point during this. But I'm also curious how you landed on writing as a medium because you have lots of visual art experience and your dad is a renowned photojournalist. And like in your books, you write a lot about visual art and also music and even podcasts sometimes you reference. So I just was wondering how you found your way to writing because you also went to NYU for a visual degree, correct? Situation. Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like that's I just went to this conference where I was where we my friend organized a panel where we were talking about writing about art or ekphrastic writing. No one that I know knows how to pronounce that word. <laughs> and um, I guess the tradition of ekphrastic writing is writing about art mm-hmm. in poetry. So it's responding to art through language. And so we had this panel that was thinking about art writing more broadly. And so my friend Ariane Zorches talked about social justice and art, writing about art as like an active, like activism. And Erica Cardwell is this art writer whose, I guess, essay collection or memoir of art writing is coming out next year. And she wrote about like identity and art and race and like experiencing the world and traveling through art. Like she talked about going to South Africa with her fiance as a, like a queer couple of color mm-hmm. and mediating that experience or reflecting on that through art. And then, sorry, I don't know if I'm way off topic. No, but- this is all super relevant. It just was how you like landed on writing as 
your form of self-expression, especially because you reference visual art and even music a lot in your writing. And you went to you had your studio art degree, like how you arrived at writing as the thing. I'll just round it out yeah, by yeah. saying, oh, yeah, Raquel Gutierrez read from their book Brown Neon and then Min Lee Chan wrote, talked about technology and art. But anyway, the, I was thinking about this because I feel like I feel like there's something about my relationship to both art and writing it that they're sort of like leaning on each other in mm. a way. And so like when I was in college, I took a lot of studio art classes. I'm like so I was really into photography in high school because my dad was really interested in teaching me how to like go out and with a 35 millimeter Pentax and learn the technology, which I always felt intimidated by. Mm. Back in the day, the whole like technology of analog photography was just felt like a lot, although it became very intuitive. But yeah. I think be, in part because that intimidated me, I think I I was attracted to writing because it felt a little bit more stripped down. But then at the same time, like there's something about the like technology of thinking <laughs> that intimidates me. And so like in a way, I feel like in a, that also made me want to articulate myself in visual terms. But I think now that I'm looking back on all of that intimidation, I think part of that was learning what kind of intelligence I have, which I think mm. we have really poor way of teaching children or did at least when I was growing up that there are different kinds of intelligence and not just the one sort of if you're good at math and you're a linear thinker and you read really quickly then you're smart and so I think that for me I like think through images and so that's what part of why I think I like to make them even though yeah I felt a little bit like perhaps I couldn't just I don't know I felt just somehow like I didn't want to go into the art world mm. But um, anyway, yeah, I feel like writing and art making are this always happening at in the same at the same time, even if the expression is writing. Yeah, I'm. I feel like I relate with music being my like thing that I can bounce off of. Or I remember you saying I was listening to your literati interview with Saeed talking about how Lorna Simpson's Glacier series propelled Borealis in a lot of ways, and how like. Uh -huh. I really relate to the feeling of getting that sort of energized and like ignited feeling from a piece of art. For me, it's usually music that makes me like want to interrogate the feeling it provokes more or like why it caused that sort of thing. And I think the point about yeah. honing that maybe words was your specific type of intelligence that you could best express that is super interesting because I do not think I was taught that either. I was like, you're decent at math and like nice to people and good at soccer. <laughs> Like, great. <laughs> yeah. And not even having the language for skills that we might have. That, like, even being nice is a kind of intelligence that I think doesn't get talked about <laughs> in that way. For real. Like, emotional intelligence. As I enter into the adult world, I guess I've been here for a minute, but I feel like I'm just entering it. It just feels like one of the most undervalued skills. And it matters so much. And I don't know. I think we're, like, unique as a culture in America in devaluing emotional intelligence as a important skill so anyway it's just yeah something I think about a lot <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I have a little bit of that intelligence if nothing else but oh uh, clearly you have shut all up of the other shut up you shut please <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started <laughs> yeah I feel like you touched on this sort of but yeah like th this process of interweaving has it always been so instinctual just to interweave art into your writing like when I read Borealis I swear I googled like a bajillion paintings <laughs> just so I could understand what you were referencing and has that process of engaging with like external art in that way 
as a means to say what you're trying to say always just been an instinctual thing for you? Yeah, for sure. And I think that I it's weird because when I go back to look at things that I wrote a few years ago, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm making so many references. This is a lot of work to put on someone who maybe wasn't watching TV in 2007 or something like that. It's just mm. like lots of references to have to keep up with. But I I feel like this relates a little bit to the um, discovering or learning to appreciate the way that you make sense of the world. But I feel like my dad is a very associative thinker. Mm. And I feel like I learned a lot about making broad, like connections between really far ranging things from listening to him or like him trying to kind of like encourage me to see things and how they connect because he's like a real fan of coincidence and so just being not only attentive to but like excited about moments when things like crash into each other in mm -hmm. ways that are kind of like um help make meaning and or give things meaning and so um in that way I feel like um there's something about the way visual art or conceptual art works that's a little bit more subconscious or subjective or like less articulated obviously yes. than writing and I really like that and so I feel like part of invoking art in writing is like allowing for a kind of connectivity to happen outside of language that I feel is important to me even if you know you're, there's a lot like leading right up to that moment and then like finding a way to give space for the reader to have a little yeah moment yeah two things one is that I think you're the first person who ever introduced me to the term synchronicity <laughs> back in the day. And so I'm sure now when you were saying that your dad has a thing for coincidence, I was like, that yep. must have been a, an inborn type affinity. Yep. And then also just thinking about your dad being so obviously like visually inclined and you learning how to interpret and feel visual art from a young age because I agree like it is so there are no usually no words involved except for the description and I think for me for a while I really felt like I didn't know how to interpret something you feel like there's a right way you feel like it's almost if you start to go somewhere with it in your brain it's like can be freaky versus something you should allow so I almost feel as if you're the way you contextualize it in your work is a way to also make it more accessible and give people an inroad to consider something that they might not know how to consider before. It's so funny how much of a bit rope the art world has like put around itself. I remember trying to use art when I first started teaching composition and people were almost angry about art because I feel like it has such a exclusive like part of how the art world perpetuates itself is through this idea of exclusivity when in so many ways like art is the most like innate human instinct we nourish ourselves we shelter our ourselves but we also need to like make meaning and I feel like art is about making meaning and yet museums and the sort of financial aspect of art has made it feel seem as though people don't aren't allowed to think of themselves as having that capacity because it's something mm. only rich people are allowed to have and that's just absolute bullshit and yeah 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 100 percent. and it's funny with making meaning like I have dreaming of Ramadi and Detroit Borealis and captioning in front of me right now and thinking about the way that you incorporate these other arts into your work just makes me think about form in general and how different the forms of these 
books are. Like Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit is a, a collection of essays. Borealis is a book-length essay. And Captioning the Archives obviously is like self-explanatory. It is captioning your dad's photograph. So I don't know. I guess I'm curious looking back in your brain and what this is 2017 for Dreaming. Then the other two are 2021. Like when you're looking back, how did it feel to like embody these different writing forms or like to express via these different writing forms? Were they really different experiences for you? Absolutely. And I would say that feels related to the sort of desire to think through visuals also in a way, because it's, mm. I remember, so my first book, Fluency of Light, I did in two, 2013 that came out and it was, it's similar to Dreaming of Ramadi in that it's like essays, but it's also a little bit more, I think, heavy on research or something. And it's a little bit less in my estimation, I feel like I, I leaned a little less into my personality in that book. I was trying to be like a writer. It was right out like my grad school moment. Just the movement from that book to then Dreaming of Ramadi where I feel like I could, I part of the sort of moment of that book coming together was realizing that I didn't just have to have serious, sad essays in it. I could also have mm. like the more sort of punchy, funny essays I was writing for Autostraddle, which Hannah really, you know, my partner, um, encouraged she was like oh you should try to write for autostraddle and when I started doing that it was like realizing how much my sense of humor also is like a part of how I experience the world and so that was really fulfilling and I feel like I was able to trust the way I put words together a little bit more in that mm -hmm. book and then with Borealis I feel like there was even more allowing myself to express myself on the level of the sentence and not just through sort of like look at these ideas that I put into conversation with each other you know <laughs> yeah and then, yeah, and then captioning is more just like acting as curator of my dad's thoughts and editing being the writing in that situation. I'm taking a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of language out <laughs> and sort of letting the poetry of his associations mm. stand out. And I'm now kind of like, okay, what does it look like to try to write today? And because I don't necessarily want to just replicate the form of the other things because I'm in a different moment in my life sure. now. Yeah. Can you re reveal at all what you think the next step might be? Or are you still very in the formulation processes of how the form of your writing might evolve for your next work? I know for sure, just from my reading, that I I read a lot of fiction right now. And I think you would like this book so much. I read a book recently called Don't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta by James <laughs> Hanahan. And it is one of the best books I've read in like a decade. It is so like sharp and hilarious and like heartfelt. And I didn't even realize until the very end that it's like a retelling of James Joyce's Ulysses. What? But in a way that you just, for me, there was no evidence of that until the very, very end where I was like, what? Oh, that's what you're up to. But oh. there's little hints along the way. Anyway, but so I've been reading a lot of fiction, like um, the term autofiction has gotten a little bit away from me where I can't tell what everyone thinks of when they hear that word but yeah. for me Chris Krause and Sheila Hetty and Clarice Lispector like Dion Brand Christina Sharp like well Maggie Nelson too like um the way that people fold in like their professional life and their intellectual life and their personal life into a narrative but then also play a little bit with the idea of fiction mm. even if it's like your name 
it's in the first person or like you're talking about yourself in the third person and all of the people in your life and the by their names but just letting there be that little bit of space I've been mm. trying to play a little bit with what if I type up all my journals and then translate it to the third person and then translate wow. it back to the first person what does it do to the world you know yeah so I feel like I'm trying to like I don't know use it almost as an opportunity for time travel especially in the case of journals of just like these are the journals I kept when I went to Lisbon in 2011 and I'm just gonna re-enter that space and try to write it in a way that makes me feel like I'm there because that's where I want to remember what that felt like and then see what happens to the present tense, you know, and like if I want to find a way to bring me now into the telling somehow. And that mm. feels like a fictional con construct, even though I kind of like the idea of it still being nonfiction. Yeah, because the act of obviously remembering can be so fictionalized in general. If you were to just recount what Lisbon was like now, it honestly, I don't know how accurate that would be. But that's really interesting. And maybe it's my not being super like tuned into the autofiction or like literary world as much. But when I think of fiction writing, I think of it's mostly fiction with like maybe a, a few parts that are non-fictional that are real. But the idea of just being able to tweak some little parts is like so exciting. And like what if the fiction is more like the like energy of the space around the writing and not necessarily the facts in it or something like just like right. what if fiction is a like a vibe or something and not like a, <laughs> a way of interpreting the reality of what you're yeah the world you're describing yeah again like you you recounting a true past in your current state in this like office could be the act of fictionalizing it itself yeah. Oh, and the other person too. What's her name? The one Sally Rooney. I feel like. Oh we, yeah. Oh, and Katie Kitamura too. There's something about the like compulsively readable voice of those mm. books that is just really interesting to me. It's what is going on here? <laughs> Which I think is cool considering what you were just saying about with your first book with fluency being like here are my good sentences and my references and my data points or whatever that means to you. To just allow yourself, yeah, if you want it, you could write a compulsively readable, funny ass book if you wanted to, Isha. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we will see. Um, I mean, not that your books aren't already compulsively readable. You know what I mean? If you really leaned in. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Again, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, pivoting a bit to playing with forms, you had me come teach at your podcasting, writing for podcasting class at Michigan last year, how did you decide to go podcast mode in your teaching versus just teaching a good old writing class? Thank you for asking that question. Um, <laughs> I feel like, first of all, when I was hired for this position, I think there was like a curiosity about digital humanities. Like, I think there's a, a lot of interest in podcasting and you know video storytelling and stuff like that and because I have a multimedia like slant in my <laughs> graduate education I feel like that's something that I'm comfortable bringing into the classroom so on some level it was like my duty as someone who is in this role but also if I look back um because it, my dad isn't just a photographer he's a very avid some might even say compulsive a recorder 
And so he often has a audio recorder, a video, like a video camera or some other kind of recording device with him at all times. And I noticed that I have accumulated a lot of media also and that I'm becoming, especially as there's more distance from the recording, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by. So in some ways, I feel like teaching the podcasting class and teaching, I also taught a video essay class, Mm -hmm. was my attempt to work collaboratively with students to start thinking about using my sort of like, I know how to construct an essay. What if I try to apply those skills to editing a video or audio piece? Right. Um, But also my dad really wants to do a podcast. And so I think also, (laughs) as you know, I've been like hitting you up for intel on how to do that. And I still feel as if we're going to make that happen. Where did that, that's so interesting, his compulsive need to document. Where do you think that like comes from slash? How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's weird now because it's become, you know, surveillance state and iPhones. Like, it's so much easier to record now than it used to be. And him lugging around (laughs) five cameras and like a camcorder and like a taking digital recorder out of his pocket or whatever. I think it just had a different quality back then. He definitely still carries these kinds of devices around, but quite a bit less. But it was a little bit more like of the analog time. And I think that so much of his instinct to do that had to do with like record, like he would seek out Black actors, Black artists, artists of all kinds, but especially Black creators. And I think part of that had to do with this sort of awareness that no one else was paying attention to these stories and a lot of the black actors he was interviewing were like transitioning to becoming ancestors I think a lot of his attitude toward art making has to do with respecting and recording elders and preserving culture I think that's sort of where I'm how I feel right now when it comes to his archives like a sense of like legacy like Mm. honoring legacy and stuff yeah yeah it's funny because the digital and the podcasting and stuff feels so far from like journals and journaling and like pen to paper type thing. And it was just it was making me think about how we met. And for the listeners who don't know, the uh, New England Literature Program, which basically is six and a half week program that the University of Michigan puts on in the woods of New Hampshire. No electronics, barely electricity and like co-living 40 students, 10 instructors, 10 English credits, and all the writing is in journals. And yeah, so that's crazy. So it's cool to hear that you are thinking of a book that is journal rooted (laughs) because where I learned the practice. Um, And then when I was listening to your literati interview, I was hearing you talk about obviously just the anxiety and the eeriness of being in rural Alaska. And you were saying how you haven't had so many experiences camping. So obviously I was thinking of Nelp and I was thinking of just the way we had to or you had to work to like unearth black history in New England on we went on a trip that is the inspiration for one of your essays called how to prepare to see a royal family portrait and I got a little cameo in this I owe so much to you for my I was a ripe 18 year old coming to experience life outside of small time. We've got a live one. We've got a live one. Yeah. So Isha, I wanted to like to read this passage and I wanted to ask you reading Borealis and the ruralness of Alaska made me think about our time at Nelp. And I just wanted to like hear about how you think about that now. 
who basically you wrote, talked to a student after class next to a dumpster about how she didn't realize it was an option to grieve for black pain after 18 years of life in white skin. Smile at the tone of incredulity, can't really say that word, that mounts and mounts in her voice. We've got a live one. So I feel like there's so much to talk about there. Nelp in general and like how you think about that trip and yeah, just ruralness and blackness. And I feel grateful to have seen all of that through your eyes. Well, I too feel grateful. Like, I don't know what your experience is of that language. And I feel Mm. deep gratitude to you for allowing me to describe you in that piece. But I feel like that was a really emotional moment Mm -hmm. for me to witness because I feel like, yeah, I think that sometimes teaching can feel so mannered and boundaried and careful. And I think especially now that race and sexuality are being so politicized in the classroom, Mm. like it's really confusing sometimes to know how to how to teach that history or engage that literature in a productive way. And I think a lot of people feel like the best way to be do that productively is for it to feel a bit messy. And I think the experience of, first of all, like having conversations like that with you were really moving just mm-hmm. to sort of realize, oh, like maybe part of this is just feeling in your body how um, horrific this history is and just letting yourself have that moment, but also going with all of you on that trip <laughs> with Jillian, because my co- my colleague Jillian Walker and I, we were having some moments of discomfort thinking about being like Black women teaching in this program in a really rural environment and just really noticing ourselves every time we left the camp and wondering how we wanted to think about Black history for this trip that we got to design together. And we decided to do this kind of trip around finding the closest exhibit of African-American art and like going there with students, but also relying on the kindness of strangers, which is a real like tricky thing. It's a very nelpy thing. And of course we were safe the whole time and we always would have found a safe space to be. But yeah, there was something about the uncertainty of knowing where we were going to end up that was trying to kind of lean into just thinking about what it means to think about the history of the Underground Railroad Mm. and the uncertainty involved in moving through space and not knowing what's going to happen next. And yeah, I don't know. I just feel like we, in having that experience with all of you, were able to experience like what is often a very difficult topic especially for people of color who are teaching in a really embodied emotional and loving way like I mm. think we felt very held by you guys and I feel like we were very mindful of wanting you to feel safe and at the same time like gregarious and like audacious and how we were thinking through these things and so I don't know I just think back on that as a very special really really special and life-changing teaching experience of just being like oh like this doesn't this isn't just sort of like throwing throwing whatever you throw at a wall it's the thing (laughs) I'm not I honestly I don't know why can't I think of it what do you throw at the wall I can't remember what the the, the figure of speech is, but like. God. <laughs> I, I think everyone will understand. Okay. There's like this big ant crawling on my computer right now. Maybe, maybe she knows. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, 
Yeah, like just like, I don't know. It was like, oh, this can be meaningful. It doesn't have to be just like constant failure. It can work. It can not work. It, I don't know what work <laughs> is, but it can feel real. I yeah, guess. it felt it felt so real and it makes me feel so because yeah, part of me like reads that. I'm like, yikes. But then also part of me is, you know what? That was so real. And so I'm glad that the that you were able to feel like held by us in some ways too. It felt very just like connected and very everybody was in it. I keep referencing this. I just watched it yesterday, but this interview you did, you were talking about queering time. And I, I had wanted you to just define what that means for you. But obviously it also made me think of this program on which we met where we measured days in nine day chunks versus seven day chunks. And so like whenever we would write in our journal we would label it like week two day eight <laughs> as a means a it is definitely culty I'm like no one get concerned fund this program um, but yeah the and it's funny because my memories from that time are so vivid I think because of the hyper presence and like the insularity of that com- community that we were living in but yeah you talking about queering time I forget what you were referencing something in Borealis in that interview but it's, it was relevant to my knowledge of you. Yeah, I feel like the idea of queering time is starting to get a little like um, so repeated now. A little auto-fictioned up. <laughs> yeah, it's getting auto-fictioned up where people are like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm a little done with the idea of queering time. But I feel like, I mean, like my experience of it has to do with, and I think a lot of, I think this is what a lot of people experience having to do with just delayed, not delayed adolescence exactly, but just. It's like partly if you're queer, oftentimes your experience of like markers of adulthood are just sort of like jumbled, you know, like, Mm -hmm. okay, we can get married now. But like, I don't know, just feeling a little bit like off the clock, the heteronormative (laughs) clock of just knowing when you're a grown up. It's okay. I've got a kid and I'm married, but I still like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Um, And I feel like especially for folks who present more androgynously, I think a lot of it is just like people just not having no idea how old you are. (laughs) And just being, are you an eight-year-old boy or are you a a 35-year-old woman? Or or are you both, babes? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like there's like a yes, I'm both kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think quite a lot of people mean. And I definitely think about when I think about clearing time but then also there's just the sort of other I don't know if this is something that relates to other people's definition of queer time but for me I think in the context of Borealis Mm -hmm. in that conversation it had to do with the fact that I was going back to this place that I had gone to with all of these not all of these two two exes on different summers of my life multiple different summers of my life and so it was like a portal to the 27 year old version of myself and the 25 year old version of myself and the 22 year old version of myself and the relationships that brought me to that place. And so part of it too, is like, um, I don't know if this is apparently, you know, not everyone who is queer experiences this, but the sort of the way in which you're like remain forever friends with all of your exes yeah, feels like a way of queering time. <laughs> yeah. Because well, I'm on a softball team with my Nelp X, which is amazing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And yeah, I definitely experienced that. But I don't know. It's reminding me <laughs> exactly of what you were saying about writing about Lisbon now, where it's like just you get to re- re-experience the thing 
it just yeah. in a different context, which almost yeah. feels like time traveling or like bending time in a way that it's funny. I, I feel like I try to explain it to my family a lot because they, for some reason, were joking that my ex, my wedding is going to be like littered with exes, <laughs> which I was like, yeah, it is. But um, you should be so lucky. I mean, like, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> exactly. And that's how I feel. And it's I remember this is corny, but I feel like the first time I got heartbroken, I thought of love as like an orb that exists between two people looking at each other like it's just this little like light ball and the nature of that light ball never changes the only thing that changes is like your perspective on it which obviously can alter <laughs> how it presents to you but I feel like the concept of orbs being able to alter and remain is like the thing so special that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks I can I ask you to just like in thinking about journals did journaling at NELP or I don't know maybe before NELP change your relationship or influence your relationship to journaling at all I Isha I never journaled before NELP I never I went after my freshman year of college so I was like 18 I never journaled I never um considered myself a writer in any way and yeah but now I do it. I do my morning pages, I would say, on average, like four times a week. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. so good. But I never go back and reread them. Like, it's just for me, it's like just the, a place to to dump. And it's funny because I've had experiences um, like I had this crazy experience where I started taking guitar lessons from this woman. And she was like, I think I actually we've met before. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, I was playing with my jazz band in Fort Green Park and you were sitting on a bench. And I think you like said thank you for the music when you walked away. She was like, I think you were journaling. And I went back to my morning pages from that day and I saw like, oh, there's this jazz band and like the main singer and guitarist is a woman, which I feel like I don't see that often, which is really cool. So I don't know why that just wow. came to mind, but that's. Yeah, I'm trying not to get remorseful about this, but I feel like <laughs> I, you know, I did morning pages. I, I, I would like to get back into it because it's, I think it's so good. But because I didn't want to carry so much of the sort of neurosis that I like vomited out onto my morning pages, I remember throwing a big stack of notebooks away when I was like in college. Oh my god! And I think about that sometimes as like now that my memory is doing whatever it's doing, <laughs> blurring, <laughs> receding, getting quieter. Getting thrown you know, against like, the wall. <laughs> whatever that figure of speech is. Now that I keep throwing my memory against the wall, it's, oh, no, like, I don't want to have to relive some of the bad moments that were inside of those. But also there's all this, there's all these, again, like portals to like, oh, yeah, what was Holly talking about on like... February 16th, 2001. Like, I'll never be able to have those little details. So I'm really glad you're doing that. Yeah, and I don't know why I really don't like to re-look at them. The idea of looking through it and, like, being hit or encountering the details is somehow so icky to me, which is... Yeah. So props to you for potentially embarking on that as, like, an, a project. Can Let me tell you, though, I actually had to so I decided and I still don't know if this is going to be a thing but I decided in order to transcribe my journals first of all I had to transcribe them by hand into another journal taking out 
only things that didn't make me want to die. So like I had to kind of like expunge material into a new notebook and then go out of the country to type it up so that I could leave the energy in that space stop and come home. Yeah. So it's highly combed through. It's like, and it took, it was hard. Like it took me actually years to do that. And I still don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's just like, oh, now I actually can live with some of this, these sentences, but I had to extract them from the absolute like emotional quagmire of the other sentences that were on the page and like the handwriting and like, you know, like me dramatizing yeah. everything. Like I had <laughs> to take it out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. To handwrite, to re-handwrite and then legit eject from the country to go type it. Um, <laughs> uh, gosh. Well, I did just want to ask, do you have a con, like, how do you connect your writing and your teaching in your brain? If coherently at all. I, I am in a moment of being so grateful that I teach and write right now. I don't know what it is about the moment that we're in post-pandemic or the classes that I'm teaching right now, but I am so, like, grateful that I get to teach nonfiction writing as a living. I feel really emotional every mm. day. And, like, laughing, <laughs> crying, feeling scared together, watching <laughs> res dogs together. Like, just, I don't know. I'm feeling, I'm so happy this is what I do. And I've always felt like teaching is, like, a creative project for me. I, it feels the same. It lights up the same parts of mm. my heart and my brain, my heart brain. I feel like I was just talking about this with my new colleague, Annie Liu, at Grey Wolf when I was at this conference because she was saying she studied with Ross Gay mm -hmm. and that he he was saying something about how he has in order to make teaching something he can do, he has to make it a creative experience. And, and she was like, I feel like you guys have that in common or something. And I feel like that is how I remember when I was applying for this job, my colleagues were like, you don't have to invent a class every time you teach a semester. And I'm like, yeah, it is exhausting, but there's something about making sure that it's a like an adventure every time that mm. makes it possible. Because I don't like you don't want to teach from your dead self. Like you want to teach from a place of like, I too am alive in these questions. And so mm. I've realized you don't have to like redo your syllabus every time in order to feel that way. But there is something about letting the class be um, like making sure that the class I'm teaching is like engaging texts or ideas or ways of thinking about form that I'm curious about, or maybe just on the brink of wanting to think about myself so that we're all there right. in the present together. And then I end up feeling like, even if I'm not actively writing, which I find it hard to do sometimes while I'm in professional mode, I'm like doing creative work that then when I can actually sit down and do the writing has helped keep me in a space that brings the ideas that I then need, then, then can access when I'm trying to actually write. I feel like I honestly only had one more question for you, which was if this wasn't what you were doing with your life, if you weren't teaching and writing, what would alternate universe Isha be up to tonight and all the time? I thought about this. I remember one time I... <laughs> This is a really long answer to your question. I'm ready, please. Okay. Because I think I, I think I think this is something that 
the poet C.A. Conrad asked me one time. I feel like this is an answer to a question I've been answering for a while, but I was supposed to pick up Hannah. Hannah had gone to a, my partner had been at a writing residency situation in New York, and I was going to go drive to pick her up. But then <laughs> I was like, this is far. <laughs> and I actually, it was that trip that like, my nephew is incarcerated in Pennsylvania. So I like went to go visit him. Oh, that's what it was. I didn't realize I could stay for four hours. Mm. And so I was like, it's late. I don't want to drive all the way to get you. Can I just meet you in Rochester? <laughs> so <laughs> Hannah was like, thanks. And had to book it to take the bus <laughs> or train or whatever to meet me in Rochester, which is where I sort of like ended up that evening. And so I was like walking around Rochester, New York. And I was like, you know what I love when I think about visualizing my future is like getting a cup of coffee early in the morning and like arriving in a big, airy, industrial loft space and like putting on music and like having art on the walls and those skinny little like file drawers that you have like art stuff in yeah. and just like being with that being with people in that space and I'm not I'm no events coordinator that is not my skill set <laughs> <laughs> but I love the idea of coffee early morning city so like there's something about like you know creating an art space that I think is a, another thing I'd like to do. And I just have to find a way to collaborate with people who have the skills to make that kind of thing happen and figure out what my role would be that, what mm -hmm. do I bring to this? <laughs> but yeah, there's something about that. Yeah. Dang. Awesome. You are. Stop. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> it just means so much to me that you were willing to chat with me in this way and give me your time. Thank you. I'm so grateful to continue to be in touch with so many of you. So mm. please remain in touch. That I shall. Thank you. <laughs> Personal Project is hosted and produced by me, Avery Friedman. Sophia Terenzio produced this podcast and helped make the jingle alongside Shant Amarkanian. And the cover art is by Aaron Sofreno. Thanks for listening.